The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Coming up, Simon Hughes will be with us to discuss the Merseyside derby and the gulf between Liverpool and Everton on and off the pitch. And despite winning a 10th title in a row at the weekend, Kit Holden will tell us why it hasn't been a great season for Bayern and why the future of star players like Robert Lewandowski is uncertain. First up though, Arsenal are exploring the possibility of signing Gabriel Jesus from Manchester City in the summer transfer window, as reported by The Athletic's David Ornstein. We'll talk to Sam Lee, who covers City for The Athletic, shortly. But David first, uh, with all the details, how far have Arsenal got with this, David? Well, the situation all revolves around Manchester City's pursuit of Erling Haaland, because the likelihood is uh, there's going to be an opportunity for Gabriel Jesus to leave this summer if City get Haaland, which we expect them to do, or another striker if they don't. Then with Jesus coming towards the end of his contract, uh, he's approaching his final 12 months. Uh, He's had limited game time at City, of course. There haven't been any sort of suggestions that he'll be signing a new deal. Then that gives the opportunity for clubs to take him. Arsenal have been fans of him for a while. Mikel Arteta knows him well from working at City. Edu knows him well, who's Arsenal's technical director, because he's also Brazilian, of course. Edu is close to the representatives of Gabriel Jesus from the time that Edu spent working at Corinthians and, of course, the Brazil national team. And I understand that they have been talking for a number of months about this possibility, to the extent that That part of negotiations, from what I hear, is pretty much done and dusted. But there has been no contact, to my knowledge so far, between the clubs. So that's obviously a significant step that would need to be taken. But the early indications are that this is a move Gabriel Jesus would be open to. And he is the profile of striker that Mikel Arteta is looking to bring in. I think they want to bring in two forwards and the way he kind of can drop deep from the striker position and also pull wide is something that appeals to them. So as things stand, Arsenal are the favourites to sign Gabriel Jesus, uh, but nothing is done. So who else are they looking at in forward areas? Of course, Mark, they will have alternative options because they don't want to put all of their eggs in the Jesus basket and they may need more. One of the players that we understand they have admiration for is Dominic Calvert-Lewin. We've reported that before and they'll be monitoring closely what happens at Everton, of course, and also whether he sort of returns to form because he's not had the best season. It's been a little bit disrupted by injuries, but he does have admirers at the Emirates Stadium and there will be uh, other names too. It's a bit of a fluid picture. They had uh, interest in the likes of Vlavic and Izak during the January transfer window. Vlavic went to Juventus. Izak has not had a good season at Real Sociedad. And I don't know if they are still sort of in the mix for him. Um, and we've got to watch this closely because the elite level of strikers, when you're talking about the likes of Erling Haaland, Harry Kane, Kylian Mbappe, Latara Martinez, um, Robert Lewandowski... There's a good chance that very few of those will be moving in the window, despite the speculation around all of them. Christopher and Kunku as well. So 
Clubs may look to this bracket down, and I mentioned in the Monday column, Marcus Turam is within that, for example. The valuations are perhaps a bit more realistic. There can be some um, gems that may not have gained quite the appreciation that some of the more high-profile names have. And I think that bracket is going to be uh, more intense in terms of movement than the one above. And I do suspect that Arsenal will be within that. Edu said in that interview with Brazilian television that he has his plans in place already, that they have been submitted to and approved by the Arsenal board. So we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, as far as this report goes, uh, I mentioned uh, Gabriel Jesus and the other source of interest which continues is Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Uh, the rest we'll just have to wait and see and try to bring to you uh, on The Athletic. Okay, David, thank you very much. Subscribers to The Athletic can read David's Monday column uh, and this week it features stories including Maurizio Pochettino's Uncertain Future at Paris Saint-Germain and you can also hear all about it on the app or exclusively on Apple Podcasts for just 99p per month. So let's look at this from the City perspective then uh, with Sam. Um, Where is City at with Gabriel Jesus or where is Gabriel Jesus at with City? Yeah, that's probably the most pertinent thing, isn't it? I think the debate that a lot of City fans have had over the years is, is he worth keeping around? What's his value to the squad? I think a few years ago, people realised that, you know, he's not going to be the next Aguero, which he he looked like when he came because he benched Aguero. He was very clinical. But I think it revolves around that, really. When it comes down to it, he's he's a fantastic squad player, but he's not that clinical striker that I suppose they need now, don't they? That's the whole point of them going for Haaland and they've wanted Kane. And that's where it ties into where City are at with him because I think this is probably the fourth season in a row where they've been willing to let him go. It sounds like, you know, they, with that being the case, they've not been convinced of him. But I think it's always revolved around the fact that they thought Gabriel Jesus is a very good player, but if we can get good money for him, which helps us go and sign somebody else, a few years ago, Jao Felix, um, Harry Kane last summer and the summer before as well, until they went for Messi. And now obviously Haaland. They thought, okay, well, we've got a very good option here, but if we can get even better, then we'll do that deal. But that's never come off. So now where does Gabriel Jesus stand with it? He's got one year left on his contract after this season. The fact he's such a good squad player is if he doesn't play, he's not going to moan. You know, Last year, City had not so much problems, but there was a few things going on with players who didn't play. They didn't have the best attitude around it. And Guardiola kind of called that out semi-transparently in the media. But Jesus has never got a problem with that. But now assessing his options with a year left on his contract, a bit like Raheem Sterling, he's thinking, well, if I'm not playing as much as I want to, why would I commit another four or five years to this when I can go for another option, another, another team, and you know, have an opportunity there to play where I want, play as well, play more than I'm getting at City. And the other thing, just to finish off on that, is it's the World Cup year. He wasn't in the last Brazil squad last month. He obviously wants to play at the World Cup. The fact it's in November gives him a bit more time because if it was in the summer, he might be very close to missing that boat. But obviously, if you'd go somewhere in the summer, you start somewhere new, you play a lot, you score goals, it probably gives you a better chance. So yeah, as for where City are with it. They've always known his value. Guardiola has spoken about that at the weekend very well. It would make sense as a good squad player, but now's the time probably for them to to cash in because he's probably not going to sign that new contract unless things change dramatically. And for him, good opportunity to go somewhere else. Do they lose some versatility in letting Gabriel Jesus go and bringing in Erling Haaland? I know, I know they get the striker that Haaland is. But actually, as David alluded to, Jesus has been used in a couple of different roles. 
by Guardiola. And there was a time earlier this season where actually, at wide on the right, he was doing a lot of damage, actually, wasn't he? Some damage. He started off the season well. I think he got a couple of assists against Norwich, but that was, you know, like... Yeah. second home game of the season and then it was Norwich as well and since then so, well, gradually but from Christmas onwards really he's not really been in the scene and this kind of sums up his his situation in the squad between I think it was December the 29th when City won at Brentford he didn't start a Premier League game until he started against Liverpool so like, what other player could or would be kept in the cold for so long and then say, actually, you can go and do a job here. It, that's the strange situation he's in. Guardiola can do that with players, can't he? Yeah, and, he can. and Gabriel Jesus isn't alone in that. And But is this a slightly different situation to say the murmurings around Emmerich Laporte leaving or Bernardo Silva leaving in the past? Players who appeared to be out of favour and then come back in and all of a sudden are regulars for six months again. Is this slightly different? I suppose it's slightly different because it's hurried up by the contract situation because Laporte right. and, and Bernardo Silva, there, there isn't that element. So also from City's point of view, they probably think, okay, well, if we can take a fee now. Maybe this is a bit harsh, but I think with Laporte and Bernardo, for example, their, their problem was the lack of playing time and now they've been able to get it and they've shown a high level and stay in the team. But like even like when Jesus gets his examples, he does like he does do pretty well, but then it's very easy for him to fall out of the, the picture again. And it's almost like with Bernardo, it's like he, he can reach this high level again and Laporte, can, he can reach this high level again. With Jesus, I, I don't know what that high level will be because he's not a finisher. He's a, he is a good option. He said do some damage on the right. He also stops the opposition left-back doing damage when he yeah, played yeah. against Chelsea and Liverpool at the start of the season. Our tracking back would be phenomenal. If City haven't got a right-back against Real Madrid, I wouldn't be surprised if Guardiola found a way to get him to do it. He was kind of a left-wing back at the Bernabeu a few years ago, actually. Um, but just in terms of that Haaland question, the thing is, you're obviously trading up if you get if you get Haaland. It will, mm. it will solve a lot of problems. But it is an interesting one because... Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if both Sterling and Jesus said, we're not signing new contracts, which is possible because... They might have opportunities to go elsewhere. And City go, okay, well, we're going to have to let you go. And they find they get good offers, which is still a big if because I don't know where Sterling would go exactly for how much money and the wages and that kind of thing. But if that were to happen, you'd all of a sudden be losing a lot of versatility on the wings, like you say. And Julian Alvarez comes in as kind of false nine, could play on the right-hand side. But then you've got Grealish, who may need to go into midfield if Gundogan and Fernandinho were to leave because Gundogan's got a similar thing. He's out of contract next season next summer and he, he wants to be in Germany's World Cup squad and he feels that a more settled position and more settled playing time would help so if Fernandinho goes he's already said that and Gundogan goes and City by one midfielder they're light there so maybe Grealish comes in and plays in midfield which they were expecting last summer until Bernardo Silva stayed and then you've got Foden on the left wing Mahrez on the right Haaland and Alvarez and then you think there's, there's not a lot of options on the wings there as you say but also who, who could they go and get? I suppose they start to bring Cole Palmer in, but you do lose that dynamism that Jesus can have. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, nobody's going to feel too sorry for them if they get Haaland, but <laughs> it, it, it's an, it is an interesting one how it would work on, on the wings, for sure. It makes it quite interesting, and maybe this was out of their hands. You will know better than me. That that decision to move Ferran Torres on, was I still think, is a really interesting one, mm. given, actually, how he'd done for City and, and the potential that was there. You may correct me. I don't no, know. no, no, you're right. Um, in terms of it, it wasn't out of their hands. This is the classic City thing of, well, if a player wants to go, then we'll, we'll let you go. And this is why with Bernardo last summer round the one before, they were like, okay, well, if you want to go, then 
than than you can do. You know, if, if I think if De Bruyne were to say I want to go, they they would allow it. You know, that's just how they mm. work. I suppose the thing with Ferran Torres is maybe you could say, well, you can go, but at the end of the season because we need you here. Um, the thing about that, we talked about Jesus kind of going under the radar for a few years and his role in the squad. I remember at the start of the season when City were playing well and kind of getting to the top. Everyone was like, oh, well, they've not had De Bruyne and they've not had Foden, who were both injured. They've done really well. Nobody said they didn't have Torres. Nobody. Like, it was just a complete afterthought, really. He did have a lot of potential and he does have a lot of potential. And Guardiola started to use him as that number nine, not as a false nine, as like a kind of fox in the box guy. But yeah, he got injured in October, but his lack of playing time and the opportunity to go, go to Barca convinced him that would be a good move. So City went, okay, yeah, go now. Got a good offer. I think they more than doubled their money. But you're right, it kind of leaves them a bit short. But in terms of the potential and then leaving them short, actually, and I know I know these things can really sound like, you know, kind of city propaganda or somebody's at the club to say, just say this. But it's like, uh, as a journalist, you kind of got to decide what is that and what is genuine. And I was speaking to somebody around the academy about Cole Palmer, who's 19, kind of, he's, he came through as in a, like a number 10, but in the Guardiola way, he's used it more in the front line. And he was saying, oh, yeah, well, part of the reason they let Torres go was because they believed that Palmer could be better. Now, I know how that sounds, but whether they believe he could be better this season or in the future, that squad position was, oh, actually, we could let Torres go. Palmer's done very well for us. He could have more and more minutes. The problem there is he played through the pain barrier in against Swindon right at the start of January in the FA Cup third round, got injured. And he's only just coming back now. He played 45 minutes for the under-23s on Friday night. So they were thinking, okay, well, he can have these minutes. And he's been injured as well. So I think that was kind of the problem with that. But you'd think on the face of it, maybe keep Torres until the summer and make sure you're not light. But that isn't what they did on this on this occasion. Their hands weren't tied. They just they just went with the immediate deal. The final one, without getting you to say something you might regret, you, you would expect Jesus to go this summer? It's most likely... Because he he knows as well he would like to play more. He's got he's like you say, and like Guardiola said, he's got a great attitude, but he would like to play more. And now he's come to the crunch. Do you want to sign up for another three, four, five years and not play as much as you want? Or do you want to go somewhere else where they obviously value you? And you know, if Arsenal do make one or two signings, as they do said at the weekend, you're presumably going to be one of the main guys. I think yeah. it's quite an attractive proposition. So, uh, yeah, I, I would I would expect him to. Obviously, if he scores four in every game like he did at the weekend, then maybe things change. But that's the kind of big if we're looking at. And I, to be honest, if I'm going to double down on things I might regret, I think it's a similar situation for Sterling. I know I remember speaking to people close to that situation around January, February, when he was in the team, he just won Premier League Player of the uh, Player of the Month again, um, back in the team. And it, there was a the kind of expectation that, okay, now he's back playing, he'll sign a new contract. But the word was always, wait until the end of the season, because if he's not playing enough during that running, then what's the point in signing up for another four or five years of it? when there's that uncertainty. So we'll have to see how his running goes. But if he doesn't play a lot, I wouldn't be surprised if there was the, the similar Jesus situation with him. Good stuff, Sam. Nice one. Thanks, lads. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So Liverpool moved back to within a point of Premier League leaders Manchester City and left Everton in the bottom three after victory in the Merseyside derby. Simon Hughes writes about football on Merseyside, joins us. And now, what do you make of it? I thought 
it was an absorbing game. Uh, two teams trying to do totally different things. Seems to be quite a lot of condemnation amongst Liverpool fans of, of Everton's approach. But what are Everton supposed to do in this situation, really? I mean, I, I think that if you come out and play against Liverpool, even with a confident team, there's every chance that you're going to get beaten. So they had to find something that they could cling on to. I thought they, they defended really well in the first half, Everton. But I think it takes a lot to, to, to deliver that sort of performance for 90 minutes. And obviously when Liverpool made the changes, it worked straight away. You know, on another day, a more confident Everton going into that game, delivering that sort of performance, might have got away with it. A more confident Everton, a more composed Everton would probably have taken one or two of the chances that they created on on the break. I mean, they followed they followed Lampard's yeah. game plan to the letter. Actually, they just they just failed in the final third. Failed in the final third, which has been a big story of Everton's season. I did think that the Anthony Gordon. Uh, incident when he he came down in the second half. I didn't think that was a penalty, but when I've seen Everton this season, it, it does feel like they fall up, fall about in the box quite a bit. Uh, I wonder whether the referees are aware of that. You know, maybe they just need to trust themselves a little bit more when they're in those situations. I mean, Anthony Gordon had another good chance. Uh, I think shortly after that incident when he, he dragged his shot wide. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a real yeah. handful yesterday. You've got to give him a lot of credit. Local lad going into a derby against a world class Liverpool team. And he did affect the game. You, you know, obviously he didn't get a lot of the ball, but when he did get the ball, he, he affected it. And that's what you're looking to do. He was there. He was Everton's big threat yesterday. And he, Simon, is is kind of their biggest positive of this season, isn't he? He is, yeah. Which I think possibly says quite a lot about the, the position Everton are in. I mean, he, he at least he's shown a bit of courage. And, and um, I, th- I think it's when, particularly on the ball, you know, it's not an easy place to play. Goodison Park, particularly when... You know, the home team isn't doing well. But when he's been on the ball, you know, he does invariably affect the game and he obviously works very hard, he's very direct. So he's the sort of player that the Evertonians are going to love. Obviously, he gets the ball in the box as much as possible. Probably needs to add a few more goals to his game because it, 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 it adds to what you said at the beginning, that Everton's problem really has been putting the ball in the back of the net. I mean, you could say Everton's problem has been right across the pitch this season, but yeah. they, they, they've, they've got... They do have players in attack who I feel, you know, if they are on form, can be a handful for... for, for, for I mean, you would not say a team with Richarlison, who plays regularly for the Brazilian, Brazilian national team, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who, if he's if he's right, he's, he's going to be in the England squad, should be in the relegation zone. But there's obviously mitigation there. Calvert-Lewin's barely been available this season. When I watch Richarlison, I, I, I think that he gets distracted too much, really. I think that's why he's not... He's not at the very, 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 very top level of of of, of the game. I think he could be that sort of player if he, if he, some of his performance were more focused. I thought yesterday some of his. I, I can understand why Everton did what they did, you know, in terms of trying to slow the game down, but falling over, holding his head, a bit too much that for me. I think because it, yeah. it ended up riling the crowd quite a bit as well, and it pumped up the crowd. I think it had the reverse effect. It reminded me when. When Arsenal came to Anfield uh, earlier in the season, and, and Arteta sort of sort of got quite emotional on the side of the pitch, and it it, it changed the mood. Now it didn't happen immediately, but I, I did sense that like sort of it, it it probably didn't help his performance on the day. I think that that's what it comes down to. If he can do something that helps his performance, then then it's work. But I don't think it did yesterday. How is it all being felt in the city at the moment? The, this co- and we'll come on to. The huge contrast between the clubs, not not just on the field, in a moment, but but the city itself must feel quite 
quite strange at the mm. moment with with two two sets of fans at very differing ends of the scale. I wasn't at the the match yesterday in a work capacity, so I was able to go and have a couple of drinks before the game. And uh, I was in a pub that was sort of halfway between Goodison and Anfield. So we, there was a few Evertonians in there, more Liverpoolians. I was speaking to to, to one Evertonian who was with all his, his Liverpool mates. And he was saying to me, you know, that he, he, he's he been going the match for 30 odd years with the same group of people. Uh, and he, only he was going yesterday. They, they couldn't bring themselves to to go and what you know to go to Anfield on, on this game. So I, I thought that was quite reflective, really. I mean, it, I think fatalism has, has certainly crept into the the mindset of, of Evertonians. I mean, when I say crept in, it's been there for, for quite a while in in a, in a slightly more subtle way. But the Evertonians I speak to are obviously very concerned about relegation. I mean. Uh, there's not many who think they're going to get out of it, really. And I can understand it with the games that Everton have got left and the momentum that Burnley have suddenly started to build up very quickly. And, and the pattern of the games as well, when the games fall, if Everton play, there's every chance that Everton could be five points behind Burnley by the next time they, they play a game, which puts huge pressure. And for me, it'll be defined by what happens at Goodison Park. If, if the crowd can, can get behind the team and, and the team give the crowd something to get behind, I think that's really important as well. Then, they, they, of course, they've got a chance. They do have, they still do have individually talented players, but they just haven't played as a team for too long. And that's why yesterday, I can understand why, you know, there is something to sort of hold on to a little bit yesterday with the performance because it was the sort of rugged, organ, I would say, Everton were well organised yesterday. Uh, which they haven't been for for a long time, particularly when you look back to the last derby at Goodison Park. That was the big surprise for me. I thought Rafa Benitez would be able to organise Everton, and, and and in that day on that night, they just didn't seem organised. Whereas I think they did this time. So they'll come away from that thinking, well, we we gave a performance, didn't get the result, but they get, got a performance. And I mean, going back to Liverpool, I think you know, obviously it's, it's such contrasting fortunes. I mean, I, I was speaking to some friends um, on Saturday some Evertonians and they were just saying, you know, as long as we don't get battered, that's that's the main thing, which I've never heard anyone say that ahead of, ahead of a derby. I mentioned you'd written about, about the gulf between the two sides off the pitch as well. What I find really puzzling about Everton is, and it goes a bit, a bit back to Anthony Gordon, is their academy and their youth products. And there are a couple of things with that that strike me. They were away at Chelsea earlier this season. Well, I was still under Rafa Benitez, and he had to use a few kids there. And they got a performance that night, actually, by playing a few of their kids at Stamford Bridge. But the other thing, the other thing that I find quite that I I, I don't understand, and, and maybe you can help, is for a while Everton under David Unsworth had a really successful under twenty three side, didn't they? They 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 were the, they they won the under twenty threes. Premier League, I think, under Unsworth. But their academy products rarely then blossom at, at first-team level. Was there any element of, of the academy being run in a way that made them successful for under twenty, winning under-23 leagues, but not making them ready to take the step up to first-team football? Well, obviously, David Unsworth left the club um, yeah. in, the last, in the last fortnight. I think it's been an issue behind the scenes for quite some time now that... The under twenty threes were were run as a as a football team <laughs> rather than a team to develop the players necessarily. You know, from what I've been told, it was David Unsworth's sort of attitude that that you know that, that by building a team sort of spirit and a team ethic that prepares players for the the you know the, the challenges of first team football. But 
the reality was it, it hasn't so much now. You obviously, you mentioned the the, the the Chelsea game. I think you get you can get performances one off. You know, when you throw a group of yeah. players in, but I think over a period of time it'll probably unravel if you were to do that for Everton pretty quickly. Now, one of the big things for me is 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 that Everton appointed uh, a new academy coaching um, sort of guru. Really, I think that's the best way to say it, Kevin Nicholson, who whose job is to align the coaching of the coaches right across the academy, which inadvertently is an admission, really, that, that things aren't quite joining up, you know, whether it's from the under-11s all the way up, that that maybe the coaches are doing slightly different things. Now, again, though, this is part of the problem of the first team and where, to, to a large extent, the fish rots from the head because Everton have had seven managers in six years They've had seven totally different managers doing totally different things at times, different identities in terms of the playing style, in terms of the personnel, obviously vastly changed first team. So that has diluted and confused at first team level, but then that affects the academy as well, because what is the academy then working towards when there's so much change all the time? What system are they playing? What is the, you know, the the, the demands on the players? Anthony Gordon, obviously, is you would say obviously been a huge success this season, but it's easy to forget. Like you know, last season he was at Preston North End and could barely get a game. You know, I think he's taken his chance with both both hands in a very difficult situation and done very well. But it was put to me, you know, Anthony Gordon was was at Liverpool when he was uh, a decade ago and got released, and that there's, there's certainly no regret at Liverpool that they let him go because he probably wouldn't get the chance at Liverpool now. You know, given the, the standards that are in front of them, I think if you can compare it to Liverpool, I think. The difference, really, the big difference is is it's not necessarily the, the, the tactical element because at Liverpool, the, the, all the, the teams in the academy don't actually, not all of them play 4-3-3. <laughs> it, there's, 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 the approach there is that, if, say, they've got two really outstanding centre-forwards, they're not going to play one of them in a different position or, or try and harm his development. They try and find a way to get the best out of that player's development. So... But where, where it does knit together at Liverpool, again, they've got the longest serving manager in the Premier League. He's been there for a long time. He's obviously world-class, which obviously helps any any club. But I think the basic demands, you know, the, the pressing, it, it's, it's code for, for, for hard work, isn't it? And I think this translates for young players that they know that no matter how hard you, no matter how talented you are, if you work hard, there's every chance that you, you're going to get more of an opportunity. Now, Again, it, this, it's so multi-layered, this, this conversation. I mean, Everton, five or six years ago, were above Liverpool academy level because things were, were a bit more consistent. This is coming around the Martinez era, towards the end of the Martinez era, where they've obviously had David Moyes, long-term manager, Martinez, who, who started off well, but obviously tailed off towards the end. But then since then, they've had so much change. It almost feels like the whole club needs like a cultural reset of saying, well, this is what we're trying to do from the top and then that filters down but it, it feels like at the moment they're trying to do a, a bottom-up sort of process which which can also work as well I don't think you should be discouraged because it's easy to forget that if you're using Liverpool as the barometer uh, of how to do it a lot of the people at Liverpool were there before Jürgen Klopp and had done a lot of good work with with some of these players now a few people reacted to the article saying well you know Liverpool have only got Trent Alexander-Arnold in, in, in the first team obviously there's Curtis Jones but the, as well uh, one or two others have, have, have got in and around in around the um, Adam Hurry will be telling me off for using that term in and around <laughs> but, but <laughs> around the first team setup this this season I think they've had six players who joined Liverpool at the pre-academy level 
So this is like, you know, the age of five or six playing for the first team. I would say that's a success in a world-class football team at the moment. Don't worry, virtually every show I do, I kind of think I'm, I'll, I'll be using a phrase that Adam Hurry will uh, rip me apart over. It's, it's, it's become a, a standard feeling before any show. Simon, thank you. Thanks, Well, let's move on to Bayern Munich on the pod. They clinched a 10th league title in a row at the weekend, but as Kit Holden has written for The Athletic, it's not felt like a successful season for Bayern. Kit joins us. Now, just on why it hasn't felt like a successful season, that that's mainly down to to going out of the Champions League to Villarreal, is it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, after 10 years, every every title feels a little bit flatter than the last anyway. But yeah, as you say, the, the Champions League is definitely the prism which which Bayern kind of view their season through every year. And and it's not that they expect to win that title every year, but it's one thing if you lose the, the final or the semi-final to Liverpool or, or Real Madrid. And it's it's another thing if you go out in the quarters to be a Real. And, and so that did put a dampener on, on everything. I think we saw on Saturday, there was a sort of sense of relief in the stadium because the last two weeks have just been so gloomy in Munich after, after that defeat. And relations between fans and club and players is still fine is it I mean we're not we're not at a Paris Saint-Germain mutinous win the title get out of the stadium don't celebrate with the players kind of thing stage no and it's certainly it's even a lot more healthy than it was a couple of years ago when Nico Kovac was was winning the title by the skin of his teeth in 2019 and there was a, a sense there that quite a lot broken down in the relationship between between club and fans and players but uh now it's different I think there is a, a faith that that Nagelsmann is still the right guy to to kind of build something there. Um, but there is a, you know, this is a, an underpass season and it's less than, than a lot of people expected. And so there is a lot more pressure, I think, than than perhaps there was last year. What's the feeling within, and as I always say, this is a massive generalisation, what's the feeling of fans of other clubs and other clubs in general that even in an underpass season, they cruise to a title? It's difficult. Dortmund, for example, often often talk about the, the financial gap and, and the fact that the way they see it, you know, there's a bigger gap between them and, and Bayern financially than there is between them and, and Greuze first at the bottom of the league. I think that's obviously, that's obviously true and it does help Bayern, but I think uh, there's also kind of a, a deeper problem in the Bundesliga at the moment that, you know, Dortmund themselves also haven't had a very successful model. They've had that for the last 10 years. They're bringing up these players like Haaland and Jaden Sancho and that, that keeps them in the top four. It doesn't really, because it's a business model that doesn't rely on winning the title, it relies on finishing in the top four and selling a brand as a, as a you know, plucky young club bringing up young players it doesn't make for a it doesn't motivate them to to really attack the title it means that they buy the other club's players in the same way that Bayern do and so the whole league has got a little bit more fossilized than it was maybe 10 years ago when you had every few years of Wolfsburg or a Stuttgart or a Bremen coming up and, and challenging Bayern how does it change does it change I think essentially I mean I'm always an optimist and I and I, I do think there's there's a chance every year for a, for a team to do it it needs a team that unlike Dortmund who who kind of churn over their squad every few years it needs a team to have a stable base and a, and a team that has grown over over four or five years I think Leipzig have that at the moment I think it'd be really interesting to see how they do next season because under Dominico Tedesco um, in the second half of the season since Jesse Marshall left they've been a very very strong side they've looked very stable have a very clear direction and if they can hold on to players like Christopher Nkunku uh, this summer then I think they they really could be a, a big threat to Bayern next year It needs something though doesn't it because there will come a point where, where Bundesliga will externally worry about the eyes on them and I, I, I'm by no means a barometer right but I feel like I've watched a lot more Italian football this season than I have Bundesliga football because actually we're in a really 
quite exciting title race in, in Serie A. And until Napoli lost at the weekend, it was probably three-way. It's probably two-way now be, between both Milan clubs. Everything can be cyclical, but less eyes will be on the Bundesliga if Bayern go to 11, 12, 13. Well, they, and, and if Haaland leaves that league. I think Haaland leaving is, is perhaps less of a worry because there will always be, with Dortmund, the next the next player who comes up, whether it's Koku or Jamie Bynard-Gittens or whoever it is coming up and, and exciting people. But Bayern's dominance is definitely a problem. And we've seen this year the debates about how to break it. You know, we've seen ideas like, like introducing playoffs discussed and, and, and Bayern even being open to that. We've seen a, even more discussion about the 50 plus one rule and whether we can reform that in order to get more investment into the league and, and a bit more money to, to make clubs like Dortmund and, and Gladbach more competitive. That's huge, isn't it? I mean, that's a real debate at the, you know, the, of the heart of football philosophy, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think bottom line is most German fans don't want that to happen. Uh, there isn't much popular support for, for that kind of move. They'd rather take quite right, well, the, what you could call the moral high ground. They'd rather take the moral high ground than and accept that Bayern are going to win 15 out of 16 titles, say. I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people would argue, even if you did have more investment, most German clubs work on the basis that they're anti-debt anyway, so they wouldn't be matching English clubs for, for spending yeah. power in any case. Yeah. So you may as well protect fan rights. Um, and the other thing is, I think a lot of German fans would say, well, actually, further down the league, there is mobility. You know, clubs with very small budgets like Freiburg are in the cup final, challenging for the top four. Union Berlin, uh, you know, promoted a couple of years ago now, now almost challenging for the Europa League. The, you know, fans do get do get excitement. It's just that Dortmund fans and, and Leipzig fans don't because there's no title race, but everyone else does. There'd be a hell of a debate then, wouldn't there, if Leipzig won the, won the Bundesliga? Because, because then you're back to club ownership that stops Bayern winning a, an 11th title, as an example. So then, then that whole debate actually magnifies itself. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I think for a lot of fans in Germany, the, the, if, when we do get into that situation, it's going to be a question of who they hate more you know? uh, <laughs> and, and who, you know, who they'd rather see. Um, but I think, yeah, I think bottom line is people do see it as a problem and they do, they do see that something needs to happen. Just one line on Lewandowski. Do, do you think he will go this summer? I mean, he didn't sound happy on Saturday. Uh, he sounded pretty disgruntled and very non-committal, um, which was different to how, for example, Manuel Neuer and Thomas Müller were talking um, on, you know, in, in the same period. And I think, I think it's a danger. I think uh, they are playing with fire a little bit. And uh, I mean, built newspaper wrote today that the Bayern really can't afford to let him leave this summer. Um, and I think probably if it does come down to it, whether they get money for him this summer or, or keep him for another year they probably will keep him for another year um i mean yeah that's that's my my that's what i do in that situation because i don't see there's there's any uh like for like replacement um that you could get even if you you get a big transfer fee for him so it, i think I, it's not looking amazing but you never know with binds there's often this kind of uh cyclical thing where every few years the tr contracts come up there's a there's a long saga and a lot of debate and eventually, you know, whether it's Miller or Lewandowski or Neuer, they always sign and it's another two years and, and the stability of the club goes on. So we'll have to wait and see. Good to talk to you, Kit. Thanks for coming on. See you soon. Thanks very much. That's it. If you want to read more on all of the stories we've discussed today on The Athletic, then you can subscribe for just a pound a month. Head to theathletic.com slash football pod and I'll be back on this feed on Thursday for the business of sport with Matt Slater thanks for listening 
The Athletic.